Chapter 1, Part 1 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Roy Haynes. Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book the Second of the rights of things of property in general the former book of these commentaries having treated at large of the jura personarum or such rights and duties as are annexed to the persons of men the objects of our inquiry in this second book will be the jura rerum or those rights which a man may acquire in and to such external things as are unconnected with his person these are what the writers on natural law style the rights of dominion, or property, concerning the nature and original of which I shall first premise a few observations before I proceed to distribute and consider its several objects. There is nothing which so generally strikes the imagination and engages the affections of mankind as the right of property, or that sole and despotic dominion which one man claims and exercises over the external things of the world in total exclusion of the right of any other individual in the universe. And yet, there are very few that will give themselves the trouble to consider the original and foundation of this right. Pleased as we are with the possession, we seem afraid to look back to the means by which it was acquired, as if fearful of some defect in our title or at best, we rest satisfied with the decision of the laws in our favor without examining the reason or authority upon which those laws have been built. We think it enough that our title is derived by the grant of the former proprietor, by descent from our ancestors, or by the last will and testament of the dying owner. Not caring to reflect that accurately and strictly speaking, there is no foundation in nature or in natural law why a set of words upon parchment should convey the dominion of land, why the sun should have the right to exclude his fellow creatures from a determinate spot of ground because his father had done so before him, or why the occupier of a particular field or of a jewel, when lying on his deathbed and no longer able to maintain possession, should be entitled to tell the rest of the world which of them should enjoy it after him. These inquiries, it must be owned, would be useless and even troublesome in common life. It is well if the mass of mankind will obey the laws when made, without scrutinizing too nicely into the reasons of making them. But when law is to be considered not only as a matter of practice, but also as a rational science, it cannot be improper or useless to examine more deeply the rudiments and grounds of these positive constitutions of society. In the beginning of the world, we are informed by Holy Writ, the all-bountiful Creator gave to man dominion over all the earth and over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. 
This is the only true and solid foundation of man's dominion over external things, whatever airy metaphysical notions may have been started by fanciful writers upon this subject. The earth, therefore, and all things therein, are the general property of all mankind, exclusive of other beings, from the immediate gift of the Creator. And while the earth continued bare of inhabitants, it is reasonable to suppose that all was in common among them, and that every one took from the public stock to his own use such things as his immediate necessities required. These general notions of property were then sufficient to answer all the purposes of human life and might perhaps still have answered them had it been possible for mankind to have remained in a state of primeval simplicity. As may be collected from the manners of many American nations when first discovered by the Europeans, and from the ancient method of living among the first Europeans themselves, if we may credit either the memorials of them preserved in the golden age of the poets, or the uniform accounts given by historians of those times, wherein erant omnia communa et indivisa omnibus valute unum conctis patrimonium esset. Not that this communion of goods seems ever to have been applicable, even in the earliest ages, to aught but the substance of the thing, nor could be extended for the use of it. For by the law of nature and reason, he who first began to use it acquired therein a kind of transient property that lasted so long as he was using it and no longer. Or, to speak with greater precision, the right of possession continued for the same time only that the act of possession lasted. Thus, the ground was in common, and no part of it was the permanent property of any man in particular. Yet whoever was in the occupation of any determinate spot of it, for rest, for shade, or the like, acquired for the time a sort of ownership, from which it would have been unjust and contrary to the law of nature to have driven him by force. But the instant that he quitted the use or occupation of it, another might seize it without injustice. Thus also a vine or other tree might be said to be in common, as all men were equally entitled to its produce. And yet, any private individual might gain the sole property of the fruit which he had gathered for his own repast, a doctrine well illustrated by Cicero, who compares the world to a great theater, which is common to the public, and yet the place which any man has taken is for the time his own. But when mankind increased in number, craft, and ambition, it became necessary to entertain conceptions of more permanent dominion, and to appropriate to individuals not the immediate use only, but the very substance of the thing to be used. Otherwise, innumerable tumults must have arisen, and the good order of the world been continually broken and disturbed, while a variety of persons were striving who should get the first occupation of the same thing, or disputing which of them had actually gained it. As human life also grew more and more refined, abundance of conveniences were devised to render it more easy, commodious, and agreeable. As habitations for shelter and safety, and raiment for warmth and decency, 
but no man would be at the trouble to provide either, so long as he had only usufructory property in them, which was to cease the instant that he quitted possession. If, as soon as he walked out of his tent, or pulled off his garment, the next stranger who came by would have a right to inhabit the one and to wear the other. In the case of habitations in particular, it was natural of observe that even the brute creation to whom everything else was in common maintained a kind of permanent property in their dwellings, especially for the protection of their young. That the birds of the air had nests, and the beasts of the field had caverns, the invasion of which they esteemed a very flagrant injustice, and would sacrifice their lives to preserve them. Hence, a property was soon established in every man's house and home stall, which seemed to have been originally mere temporary huts or movable cabins, suited to the design of Providence for more speedily peopling the earth, and suited to the wandering life of their owners before any extensive property in the soil or ground was established. And there can be no doubt but that movables of every kind became sooner appropriated than the permanent substantial soil, partly because they were more susceptible of a long occupancy, which might be continued for months together without any sensible interruption, and at length by usage ripen into an established right but principally because few of them could be fit for use till improved and meliorated by the bodily labor of the occupant, which bodily labor, bestowed upon any subject which before lay in common to all men, is universally allowed to give the fairest and most reasonable title to an exclusive property therein. The article of food was a more immediate call, and therefore a more early consideration. Such, as were not contented with the spontaneous product of the earth, sought a more solid refreshment in the flesh of beasts, which they obtained by hunting. But the frequent disappointments incident to that method of provision induced them to gather together such animals as were of a more tame and sequacious nature, and to establish a permanent property in their flocks and herds, in order to sustain themselves in a less precarious manner, partly by the milk of the dams, and partly by the flesh of the young. The support of these, their cattle, made the article of water also a very important point. And therefore, the book of Genesis, the most venerable monument of antiquity considered merely with a view to history, will furnish us with frequent instances of violent contentions concerning wells the exclusive property of which appears to have been established in the first digger or occupant, even in such places where the ground and herbage remained yet in common. Thus we find Abraham, who was but a sojourner, asserting his right to a well in the country of Abimelech, and exacting an oath for his security, because he had digged that well. And Isaac, about ninety years afterwards, reclaimed his father's property, and after much contention with the Philistines, was suffered to enjoy it in peace. All this, while the soil and pasture of the earth remained still in common as before, and open to every occupant, except perhaps in the neighborhood of towns where the necessity of a sole and exclusive property in the lands, for the sake of agriculture, was earlier felt, and therefore more readily complied with. 
Otherwise, when the multitude of men and cattle had consumed every convenience on one spot of ground, it was deemed a natural right to seize upon and occupy such other lands as would more easily supply their necessities. This practice is still retained among the wild and uncultivated nations that have never been formed into civil states like the Tartars and others in the East, where the climate itself and the boundless extent of their territory conspire to retain them still in the same savage state of vagrant liberty which was universal in the earliest ages, and which Tacitus informs us continued among the Germans till the decline of the Roman Empire. We have also a striking example of the same kind in the history of Abraham and his nephew Lot. When their joint substance became so great that pasture and other conveniences grew scarce, the natural consequence was that a strife arose between their servants, so that it was no longer practicable to dwell together. This contention Abraham thus endeavored to compose. Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between thee and me. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. This plainly implies an acknowledged right in either to occupy whatever ground he pleased, that was not preoccupied by other tribes. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, even as the garden of the Lord. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan and journeyed east, and Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan. Upon the same principle was founded the right of migration, or sending colonies to find out new habitations when the mother country was overcharged with inhabitants, which was practiced as well by the Phoenicians and Greeks as the Germans, Scythians, and other northern people. And so long as it was confined to the stocking and cultivation of desert, uninhabited countries, it kept strictly within the limits of the law of nature. But how far the seizing on countries already peopled and driving out or massacring the innocent and defenseless natives merely because they differed from their invaders in language, in religion, in customs, in government, or in color, how far such a conduct was consonant to nature, to reason, or to Christianity deserved well to be considered by those who have rendered their names immortal by thus civilizing mankind. As the world by degrees grew more populous, it daily became more difficult to find out new spots to inhabit without encroaching upon former occupants. And by constantly occupying the same individual spot, the fruits of the earth were consumed and its spontaneous produce destroyed without any provision for a future supply or succession. It therefore became necessary to pursue some regular method of providing a constant subsistence. And this necessity produced or at least promoted and encouraged the art of agriculture. And the art of agriculture, by a regular connection and consequence, introduced and established the idea of a more permanent property in the soil than had hitherto been received and adopted. 
It was clear that the earth would not produce her fruits in sufficient quantities without the assistance of tillage. But who would be at pains of tilling it if another might watch an opportunity to seize upon and enjoy the product of his industry, art, and labor? Had not, therefore, a separate property in lands, as well as movables, been vested in some individuals, the world must have continued a forest, and men have been mere animals of prey, which, according to some philosophers, is the genuine state of nature. Whereas now, so graciously has providence interwoven our duty and our happiness together, the result of this very necessity has been the ennobling of the human species by giving it opportunities of improving its rational faculties as well as of exerting its natural. Necessity begat property, and in order to ensure that property, recourse was had to civil society, which brought along with it a long train of inseparable concomitants, states, governments, laws, punishments, and the public exercise of religious duties. Thus connected together, it was found that a part only of society was sufficient to provide by their manual labor for the necessary subsistence of all. And leisure was given to others to cultivate the human mind, to invent useful arts, and to lay the foundations of science. End of chapter 1, part 1.